Welcome to today's edition of the Career 100 podcast. This series is designed to introduce students to different career options that are in demand and share the path each practitioner has taken to arrive in their current position. Sometimes I feel that I get paid to play a lot of the time. <laughs> Obviously, there is a science behind the things that we do as OTs, but inherently it needs to be fun because we need children's engagement and total cooperation. And it's challenging to try and work out what is going to grab that specific child's attention and how can you structure activities that will really make him curious and want him to engage. There's some real joy in the job. And I think that's definitely what gets me up in the morning. This is Felicia Gopal of the Career 100 podcast. I want to thank my community for taking time out of your day to continue to listen to our podcast. If you've gotten value from this series, please take the time to rate it in iTunes and leave comments. One of my recent guests made a suggestion that prompted us to start the podcast using a short preview of the interview, and another made a suggestion that caused us to change the questions that we asked during each interview. That's the impact of your suggestions and comments, and I ask you to keep them coming. We're continuing our series on the top 100 careers and exploring the profession of occupational therapists. Occupational therapists treat patients with injuries, illnesses, and disabilities through the therapeutic use of everyday activities. They help their clients develop, recover, and improve the skills needed for daily living and working. In the U.S., occupational therapists need a master's degree in occupational therapy. In addition, all states require an occupational therapist to be licensed. Job growth in the U.S. is expected to increase about 33% between 2010 and 2020 as occupational therapists start to work with some troubling diseases like Alzheimer's disease, cerebral palsy, autism, and the loss of a human limb. Today's guest is Taryn Poulton, who is an occupational therapist specializing in pediatrics. She graduated from the University of Witwatersrand in Johannesburg in 2004 and has worked in a variety of settings in South Africa and the United Kingdom. Since having her daughter, she works with mothers advising on activities and equipment that will aid their baby's development and has recently developed an iPad app, which is designed specifically for that first year of development. She runs a private practice and works with children with special education needs in the UK. We'll hear a little bit more about her and her site as we go through that. I'd like to welcome today's guest, Taryn Poulton. Thanks, Felicia. It's great to be here. Great. So let me ask you, since I'm not that familiar with your field, how did you become an occupational therapist? Well, when I was at school, I was absolutely convinced that I'd become a teacher until I reached my final year at school and decided I didn't want to step foot in a classroom. <laughs> so I then took some time off. I had no intention of doing um, any further education and I worked in a travel agency. And after two years, I hated it. I hated being behind a desk and, and I just had really little interaction with people, which is really what I wanted. And so in a discussion that I was having with my mother, she always thought that I should be an OT because my, my brother had needed OT when he was a child. And um, she thought that it would just be the ideal job for me. So I went to observe an occupational therapist in a psychiatric unit in Johannesburg and just saw what they did. 
um, on a daily basis. And I was really excited by what I saw. I was really excited to see the creativity, to see the kinds of things that they were doing with their patients and to see that it really made a difference. So I then applied and it was a little bit touch and go as to whether I'd be accepted because unfortunately I didn't work that hard at um, school. So my marks weren't amazing, but I, I got through by the skin of my teeth and I absolutely loved every single aspect of OT. I loved my course. I loved all the placements and the practicals that we did. And that really just kind of birthed my love for OT and it hasn't really died down, I'm pleased to say, 10 years later. Absolutely. You know, your path is a path that many students seem to kind of go through. Perhaps we don't buckle down enough when we're in school. And often it's a function of not really knowing what it is that we're going to do. But once we've really kind of uh, nailed it down and started to move forward in something that we're really, really interested in, then things really can turn themselves around. Exactly. I, I really think that. And, you know, I, I wasn't a bad student. I was fairly good, really, until my final exams where I, I bummed out on one final exam that was maths. And that was the one thing that I really needed for OT. And at the time, I thought, I, you know, there was an option to rewrite that exam. And I just thought that I would never need it. So looking back, I would definitely have worked harder and done kind of my best at everything that I could have done to make sure that I had the marks. But thankfully, I, I got in anyway. Otherwise, I would have probably had to repeat the subject. Absolutely. So let me ask you, what sorts of problems does a OT, as you refer to it, address? It's really quite broad and quite varied. Um, and there, there are quite a few different fields of OT. And the one that I specialize in is pediatrics. So I see children with cerebral palsy or Down syndrome, autism, sensory processing disorder. There's another huge field of OT which specializes in hand therapy. So if you have sustained a gunshot wound to the hand or you need any kind of hand rehabilitation, carpal tunnel syndrome, then there's an OT that would be specific for that field. OTs also work in psychiatry or mental health. So things with schizophrenia or depression or bipolar mood disorder, there's a field of OT for that. And then there's also for physical disabilities, so spinal cord injury, um, stroke, any kind of neurological disability. So you can see it, it's really varied and really broad. It means that it could be very, very interesting because not only could a student be an occupational therapist within the industry, then they could really specialize based on their interests. I've got a particular interest in all things Alzheimer because my father has a form of dementia. And right. so, you know, working with a occupational therapist for that would be very, very instrumental for me, but somebody else might have a brother or sister that grew up with uh, cerebral palsy, for instance, and they might be interested in that. I also talk oftentimes about the fact that my nephew is autistic. And so, you know, to know that there's an occupational therapist out there who can assist him is also something that really appeals to me. Absolutely. And it's one of the things that I really love about the profession. And when I was studying and we did different placements, you know, we had to have experience in just about every field that we could. I would leave every placement thinking this is what I could do for the rest of my life. You know, I loved every aspect of it and just the huge variety. It really does cater to so many needs, both for the OT as well as for our clients. Absolutely. 
Well, I love the fact that you're working with children. I uh, went on to your website and I was kind of poking around and I was remembering how enjoyable that was as a mother who was, you know, uh, massaging my kid when they're in the bath, having their time on their stomach. And, you know, my pediatrician talked about how important that was to her, despite the fact that, you know, of course, as a new mother, all I wanted to do was carry her around as much as possible, <laughs> you know, just Absolutely. to have her close to my heart. <laughs> I know that feeling well as well. <laughs> so tell me, what are some of the common misconceptions or myths about being an occupational therapist? I think one of the biggest things stems from the origin of the profession, really, which is when during the World Wars, they were looking at how they could best rehabilitate soldiers um, who had been injured in the war. And they found that through using meaningful activities, soldiers improved not only their mood, but their physical abilities improved. And one of the activities that they commonly did was things like basket weaving and very craft based activities. And so there was a misconception still at university. We were really teased for being basket weavers, which we really not. But there is this misconception that, that we're very crafty. And then the other misconception that we get quite a lot is because of the term occupation. A lot of people think that we're involved in helping people find work. Mm. And although there is an aspect of that for some of our clients, it's not the only thing that we do. Okay. So could you tell me a little bit about the career path to become a OT in the UK? And if you have the background and knowledge, could you compare that to what somebody in the US might go through? Yeah, sure. It is a university degree and there are different ways within the UK and in terms of doing a part-time course or a full-time course. You could, for example, you could work as an OT assistant or as a therapy assistant and then study part-time to become an occupational therapist. But generally, it would be a three-year degree. And after that, you, you need to be registered with the Health Professions Council in the UK. And they, that's something that needs to be updated regularly. In terms of the states, there is some way that you could go for more information. It's the American OT Association, and their website is aota.org. But in the states, you need a master's degree to practice. And as you said in the beginning, Felicia, in the introduction, every um, therapist needs to be licensed. And that license, as far as I'm aware, is state-specific. So it depends on what state you work in. If you were to move, then you would need to be re-registered or re-licensed in the new state. Okay. So there is some overlap in that both the UK and the United States require a degree. And then in the United States in particular, you also have to be licensed in your state. You said in the UK you have to be registered. Is that similar to the... Yes, it would be similar to the licensing. You need to be registered. I think it, it gets renewed every two years and they monitor um, that you're doing continuing professional development. They monitor that you're still active in the profession and you're not allowed to practice unless you are registered with the Health Professions Council in the UK. So I'm sure that it's a similar process to the licensing. Here in the US, yes, I'm sure yes. that it is. So let me ask you, if you had the opportunity to give a young Terran advice, what advice would you give yourself today when you were just getting started out, if you were just getting started out, based on what you know now? 
I think the biggest thing for me is I worked once I had just qualified in South Africa. We had to do a year of community service and I worked in Soweto, which is one of the biggest townships just outside of Johannesburg. And I was working with some very disadvantaged people in a, you know, there were shacks. It it was a township. And um, I also worked quite a lot with um, AIDS orphans and AIDS babies. And one of the biggest challenges in, in that environment is to know what your limitations are, both professionally as to kind of what what is OT and what goes beyond the scope of OT, maybe into social work or physiotherapy. But the other thing is that although it's an incredibly rewarding job, we're working with people who are either ill or they are disabled or, or they are needy in some form. And so also know what your limitations are personally. It's very easy to get very emotionally involved with your patients. And so just to know how much you can give of yourself and where you need to draw back and also look after yourself a little bit. Well, you know, I think that that's true in really a lot of professions. I've been fortunate in this series to talk to a lot of people who care very much about their profession, whatever it is. Yes, absolutely. And oftentimes when you're really involved in your profession, our instincts is to help those who might need our services. You know, for business owners, the downside of it is sometimes we help people who aren't paying us, which uh, is not necessarily in our best interest. No. Uh, But also there's the emotional attachment. It's just like, I know that if you don't do this one thing, I know the path that's going to lead to. And trying to separate the person who is heading on the uh, Titanic on their way and just let them do that in spite of, you know, the fact that really what you want to do is you just want to hold them by the hand and say, no, this is really a bad way for you to go. I think that can be challenging in in any career. And I especially think that when you're working with perhaps AIDS orphans or really disadvantaged folks, then perhaps my instinct personally would be to really try and help as much as possible. Absolutely. And, and forget that I need some mental health and some mental peace. Exactly. It's it's so easy to do because you just think there's so much need. And, and actually, even the littlest thing that you do makes such a big difference to a lot of people. But I, I do remember going to bed at night with these little babies images in my mind and thinking, you know, I need to step back a bit because I think it's easy to get burnt out, I guess. So we just need to make sure that we're looking after ourselves at the same time. Is that one of the reasons why you are now focusing on working with pediatrics is because of how it started for you in your career? I think so. I think I always had an interest in children. I've always loved working with children. And that's really where my passion has been. But I I have worked across a variety of different disciplines. When I came to the UK, I worked with them. people with learning disabilities. And that was also lovely. I mean, every aspect of the career is really rewarding. But particularly when I became a mom and started interacting with a lot of the moms around me, just some of the things that I saw them doing, I found a little bit alarming. And I thought, you know, I, I had this knowledge of child development through my profession and through my training. And I thought, I'm sure that we could do things differently for our babies and actually give them a really solid developmental foundation. So that's really why I focus more specifically on babies. And I guess you could consider it more of a promotion, a health promotion. You know, we're trying to stop things from getting bad, um, in a sense. Right. And oftentimes the intervention or the education that we provide is the thing that 
can make a difference. And especially when you're talking about a baby, you know, I remember all the books that I read and all the rest of the things that I did when I first had my first child that they always talk about, you know, the first year being so instrumental in helping them develop as people and and who they will ultimately grow up to be. And I just think that knowing more about uh, what it is that you could offer would help so many more moms out there. Yeah, I, I really hope that it will. And you're absolutely right. And, and the thing is that when we have our little babies, it's hard to see them at school 10 years down the line. But really, the things that we do now really does have a significant impact. And an example of that is one of the little boys that I treated, and he was seven, and he, he really couldn't sit still in class. He was everywhere on the carpet, and he was turning around, and he, he could not concentrate at all on what his teacher was saying. And when I did an assessment with him, I found that his core muscles were really, really weak. So he physically couldn't sit still. And when I spoke with his mom and I explained, she was really surprised. And she said, oh, that's really strange because he spends so much time on the playground running around. And, and she felt that he was really strong. Right. And when we dug a little bit deeper and I asked, for example, if he had crawled, he had completely missed the crawling stage mm. and had gone straight to walking. And because he had missed crawling, he hadn't had the chance to develop the core muscles that he needed to be sitting still in class, you know, for that mom, that's not something that she would ever have considered when he was nine months and should have been crawling and wasn't. Right. So I think, you know, as you said, the things that we do with our babies in the first year is just so vital. And it does really set the foundation for all of their future development. I'm sitting here smiling because I'm thinking to myself as a mother, I would be like so proud. I'd be like, oh, let me tell you about my brilliant child who went getting up on fours to walking, you know, it's just like, this seems like a good thing. And little would I know that, you know, 10 years down the road when they're in school, the fact that, you know, my baby wasn't able to develop their core muscles by crawling may contribute to why my kid can't sit still in classroom. Exactly. And so many moms, I think we really do feel the pressure as moms to push children on their milestones and you know there's so much competition <laughs> amongst mothers about who's doing what first and so I definitely think that there is some pressure to to almost accelerate our children through the milestones when in fact it's, it's more important that they go through the milestones than when they actually go through the milestones. Absolutely I just remember that my second daughter was going and she was developing very quickly and her and her cousin were born within two weeks of each other. So as wow. we went on and we were talking about milestones, I just remember having conversations where my daughter could do this and, and then I'd be oh, and I'm sure your son can do that. And they'd be like, no. And then <laughs> there'd be something else. And so it got to be so that I would stop talking about what it is my daughter could do because their son was not doing those things. Ultimately, what we ended up finding out is that uh, the reason he wasn't meeting those milestones is because he was autistic. Right. Um, you know, and so it was remarkable because I just remember very vividly those times and those feelings. It's just like I felt like I couldn't talk about my kid to my brother and sister-in-law just because their kid was not going through the mm. same and meeting the same milestones at the same times. 
it is such a hard thing because also as a mother, you're so proud of the way that your child is developing. And I know with my daughter, you know, we celebrate every little milestone, irrespective of how insignificant it might be. It's a big celebration in our family. And so I'm sure that the same for you, that you want to express, you know, your joy and your pride, you know, at what your baby's doing. But it is quite easy at the same time to become quite competitive. But it's also really interesting that you say that, you know, it just shows you how important the milestones are. And, and if there is a significant delay, then, you know, we need to be asking why. So it's it's really interesting that you could see from such a young age that actually there may be something else going on for your nephew. Yes. So let me ask you, what gets you up in the morning to serve your clients? You have some very special clients and oftentimes you're working with people's babies. And I know that perhaps there's some pressure that uh, parents might bring into that when you're not recognizing the brilliance of their child that they're seeing it so tell me what gets you up in the morning I think it's just the sheer love of the job and sometimes I feel that I get paid to play a lot of the time and obviously there is a science behind the things that we do as OTs and and the way that we structure um, our therapy sessions with children but inherently it needs to be fun because we need children's engagement and total cooperation and so if you're getting them to do something that's that's really quite boring or something that they're not wanting to do then technically you're not being therapeutic so it means that the job is really fun and it's challenging it's really challenging to try and work out what is going to grab that specific child's attention and how can you structure activities that will really make him curious and want him to engage so i think it's the job itself that I love. And it's also just the children. Each child has their own, their own quirk and their own idiosyncrasies. And they, you know, there's not a day that goes by where I don't find something to giggle at about something that a child has said or the things they've done. And then it's also a real joy for me to see them overcome their difficulties. And it's something for us seems so simple, but for a child to be able to dress himself in the morning is a huge success for some children or for a mother to say, you know, we got dressed this morning and we didn't have a major meltdown. We got to school on time and and things were okay. And so there are, you know, the definite challenges, but there's some real joy in the job. And I think that's definitely what gets me up in the morning. Absolutely. So I'm sitting here thinking as you were sharing some of the examples of, I remember, you know, how excited I was when my daughter could finally dress herself. And that meant one less thing off of my list. Of course, she always had to take a look at her color combinations because one of my daughters (laughs) loves bright, (laughs) really bright. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, it's just like you do celebrate the advance that she's gotten to the point where she can kind of dress herself as well as, you know, get herself off to school in the morning. So when I thought about occupational therapists, I... I really hadn't thought about the impact of those sorts of skills and learning those sorts of skills and the impact that it has on a family. It's huge. It is absolutely huge. And I think a lot of the moms that come to me are, you know, again, these are families in need and parents often come, they've reached a certain point of desperation when they come. And so to see the whole family making progress and to see success in small areas really for us you know we do consider it a small area but for the families it's huge it really it is huge and i can see the value that you bring when you can help families master um, new areas in an area where they used to be struggling yes absolutely 
So what sorts of changes are going on in your industry that somebody who was newly coming into it needs to be aware of? I, I actually contacted a couple of my colleagues in, in the States, Australia and South Africa to um, get their view on this question. And I think some of the things that came back from my colleagues and from what we've noticed as well is that I think that there is a lot of pressure in terms of, and I think this is probably in terms of the global economy, there will always be pressure on, on services in terms of what we are able to provide and what people can afford. You know, in the United Kingdom, where we have the National Health Service, in some of the services that I worked in, we had really significant waiting lists. And so we, we had to be really clear about what we could and couldn't offer in order to see the sheer volume of children that needed to be seen. And I think that that also applies for the states in particular. I think that there is pressure to justify the benefits of OT, especially to medical aids and, and to um, health insurances, to try and get them to pay for what is a vital therapy. I think that there is a lot of pressure on that. And we're also seeing a lot of children in particular who are being diagnosed where in the past they wouldn't have been diagnosed. And I think that's because of more criteria for diagnosis. So there are a lot more children being diagnosed with autism, for example. And then also, you know, we live in an aging population as well, where we have a lot of good access to healthcare, which means that people are living longer. And, and so services need to expand to accommodate that. And then the other thing that came through really was the use of technology, which I think is actually quite exciting to be able to look at what technology is out there and how we can use that in our therapy to benefit our clients. So I think that there is quite a lot of pressure on the profession, but it also means that it's a sustainable profession, that I think that there'll be a high demand for OTs in the future. And I think that it's also exciting because it, it means that the profession can change and grow with the growing needs of, of our client bases. You know, as I kind of look around, I can see that. I can see that in terms of the aging population. I can also see that across the aging population is not just a U.S. problem, if you will, but it's something that's happening kind of globally across many countries where their populations is getting older. One of the things that I, I find is true for myself is I tend to be more informed about making decisions. I tend to go onto the internet first, yes. you know, and try to look for a solution or look for the type of provider that I need in terms of whatever it is that I feel like I need. I was rather surprised when I moved my father from Philadelphia to California with me that the uh, new adult daycare center that he's attending has occupational therapist who was working with him. That's not something that was offered through the adult daycare center he was there. And so I was talking to that person about what sorts of services. And I think as the population changes, as the conditions of the population also changes with the increasing number of people who have dementia, Alzheimer's, or those sorts of diseases, you know, occupational therapists are going to be called upon more and more to provide services to the patients. But I think that, and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, but there's probably also an element of, I want to say therapist, in that, you know, just having somebody that I can talk to about what's going on with my father is something that I find very valuable about the occupational therapist that is in-house at the adult daycare facility that he's there. Do you find that your clients are also asking you to, if you will, relieve their minds that they're doing the right thing? Very much so. And I think 
one of our roles is um, occupational therapy is a very holistic therapy in that we consider the person in their environment and their social environment as well. And so we, we try to look at, at every aspect. And I think that families in particular find it helpful to have a sounding board. And I often have moms coming to me and saying, this is what I'm doing. What do you think? Is this the right thing? And I think that's very much part of our role is to guide people as to what kinds of activities or what kinds of things would be helpful for people. You know, and I have to tell you, that has been really instrumental because as my father's dementia has progressed, he's become a lot less verbal. And so I never quite know what's going on behind, you know, when he's not talking. And because it's beginning to be more and more difficult to talk to him, you know, I was really kind of noticing that I was talking to him less uh, because it's hard to have a conversation. He responds, yes. but it's hard to have a conversation where you can go from, you know, A to B to C to D. Yes. Uh, but when I had somebody who had some occupational therapy background working with him, I saw that he could still play cards, he could still Absolutely. play dominoes, he could still do puzzles, some of the things that he enjoyed doing. Maybe we can't do 500 or 1,000 piece puzzles, but we can do puzzles that have got bigger pieces, and he gets the enjoyment of being involved, and he gets the enjoyment of being successful completing something, as opposed to the frustration I felt like he was under prior to my understanding. Absolutely. And, and the beauty about OT, activity is inherent to therapy. You know, that, that is therapy, is giving people the right activities that will help them to develop their skills or to maintain skills. And, and that's also a really wonderful way that you could then spend quality time with him because it gives you an alternative to a conversation. Right. It, gives, it gives you something that you can do that actually that could be a really special time with him that takes the pressure off both of you. And, and my father was, um, he was diagnosed with motor neuron disease in 2002 and ultimately passed away in 2004. But I, I can totally relate to the frustration and the difficulty of communication and then finding other ways that you could enjoy each other's company. And I think that occupational therapy would be quite helpful in facilitating that process. Yes, yes, it has been. So why do you think that being an occupational therapist is in the top 100 careers? Well, I was thinking about this from two aspects, really. I think the first thing is why I would put in the top 100. <laughs> and I think for me, the reason why I would or that I think it should be is I think that it's, it's incredibly rewarding. I think that we've already spoken about the huge diversity within the profession. And I think, as we said as well, that it's a sustainable profession. I think that there'll always be a need for OT. I also think that it can be fairly stress-free, and I think that it, it requires a lot of creativity. So I think those would be the kind of top reasons. And I'm sure that the other aspects to look at from a more objective point of view, I guess, would be things about um, remuneration or pay and, and that it is a well-recognized profession. And I'm sure that it is, well, certainly in the UK, it, it would be well-rewarded. And, it, you know, you could live off your salary, which is always a good thing, I think. Yes, yes, it is. <laughs> All right. So do you have any final thoughts that you'd like to share with our audience? I think just to encourage anybody who, who is considering a career in occupational therapy, I think that it's really helpful to get in contact with an OT. And, and if you can, go and observe. 
I think that it can be a fairly broad profession and sometimes it can be difficult to understand exactly what an OT does. And so if you are interested, go and see what an OT does and go and spend time and ask questions. And I would really encourage people to investigate OT as a career. You can tell I'm very passionate and enthusiastic about it, but I can't highly recommend it enough, really. You know, I think that you're not the first guest that has suggested that it is in your best interest for students to take the time to uh, get to know somebody who is in the profession that they are interested in, ask them questions. I talk about when I made the transition from being an accountant to a certified financial planner, financial planner, I talked to as many financial planners would talk to me. So I'm dating myself, but I went into the yellow pages and looked up everybody who's got CFP after their names, and I talked to them. And I've learned that so many people who had the same designation could do so many different things. And that brings in the element of creativity that you talked about and alluded to in the occupational therapy profession, because you can specialize in pediatrics, you can specialize with autism, you can specialize with so many different fields. And I think that that makes it very exciting career. And you can learn so much about the career and what you don't want to do by uh, finding out oftentimes what people are doing. Exactly. I think that it's important before you embark on a potentially expensive journey that you know that what you're doing is really what you would see yourself doing, you know, 10, 20 years down the line. And that, that it's something that you really could be passionate about because the, the four-year degree that I went through was certainly very hard work. And if I wasn't sure that it was something that I really wanted to do, I'm not sure that I would have stuck it through. Absolutely. So, so definitely make sure that it is what you want to do. Perfect. So if somebody wanted to get some additional information from you and learn a little bit more about your practice in the UK, could you uh, tell us how they might get a hold of you? Sure. The main way is that I have a blog, and the blog is um, Niggly New. It's N-I-G-G-L-Y-N-O-O.com. And I, I'm there fairly often. And you can also um, go on to, there's a contact form on that page. And anybody who would like to get hold of me or, or like to find out more about OT is absolutely welcome to get hold of me through Neglinu and through that contact form. All right, perfect. So for those people who are listening who aren't able to write that down, we'll include that in our show notes so that you can definitely get a hold of Taryn Poulton and learn a little bit more about her practice as well as OT. And to learn more about the college planning process, I invite you to visit our website at College Funding Resource. I also encourage my listeners to keep coming back to listen to more of our Career 100 podcasts. If you appreciate what we're doing here at the Career 100 podcast, I ask you to go and rate this podcast in iTunes. At collegefundingresource.com, you'll be able to listen to guests like Taryn, who have valuable information to share about different careers that you might want to consider. Taryn, I'd like to thank you for joining me today and sharing your background and education needed to become an occupational therapist, as well as sharing your story and knowledge of the field. That's great, Felicia. No problem. Thank you. All right. And I want to thank all of my listeners for joining us today and hope that you will join me again for the next installment of the Career 100 Podcast. Thank you for listening to today's edition of the Career 100 Podcast. We hope you'll join us again for our next podcast, where we'll continue to interview experts in the top 100 careers for 2011, giving you the insider's view of their chosen profession. If you'd like more information about planning and saving for college and to instantly download your free copy of College Funding Resources Report, 
five strategies that parents need to start using today to cut their college costs tomorrow, visit www.collegefundingresource.com. That's www.collegefundingresource.com. This is Kathy Davis for the Career 100 Podcast.